Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Well, some designers don't realize is just how sophisticated the market is these days. So rather than picking maybe a cheap, uh, sort of wall tile opposed to a sort of a handcrafted sort of crackle glaze tile where every single crackle glaze on each individual tile is unique and different because they're all handmade rather than printed on um that yes. it does go a long way the customer of the of the business if or even an in, a residential interior might not necessarily know and can pinpoint the difference but they can certainly pick up on the authenticity. My guest today on Talk Design is none other than Russell Manley. Now, Russell has a hair salon in New York City and in Tokyo called Ludlow Blunt. Now, we'll get Russell to tell us why it's called Ludlow Blunt, because it's a great story. And Russell's uh, an Englishman who lives in uh, Brooklyn, and uh, or between Brooklyn and the Catskills, actually, and has made a real name for himself in the hair industry through an incredible style and a love of things like architecture and design and handmade work would be probably the best way I'd describe it. Just an absolute ability to pull that thing out. So Russell, thank you so much for making time to be on Talk Design with me. It is such an honor to have you here and it's good to see you again. I haven't seen you in probably three years we were just working out. So welcome to Talk Design. Well, thanks for having me. And yes, great to uh, virtually see you and uh, speak to you again after, like you say, three years. I thought it was two, but time uh, certainly does fly. Oh, so uh, it's a shame we shame we can't meet in person, but here's we hoping in next year, maybe. Maybe next year, I think so. Yeah, it's going to depend on whether, because of COVID, whether they're going to let us in or out and when they're going to do those things, I suppose. Um, and And also, like the US... Yeah, well, we'll go into a few of those pieces. We're about two days away from an election, aren't we? Um, I've got some. I've got um, Australian clients who are sort of flying back, and they say you have to quarantine for a couple of weeks when you arrive in Australia, but you don't get to choose the hotel that you it. stay in. So you've got you've got you it. could luck out and get a good one, or you could be in like a travel lodge with a trouser press. You two weeks got it, man. <laughs> and you won't need to press your trousers, but you'll be making toasted <laughs> sandwiches on it. <laughs> It'll cost you also, so the government doesn't pay for it. If you choose to go, it costs you about six thousand dollars or more when you land. Uh, wow. They take you straight to the hotel and then lock you in for basically two weeks you can do um, sometimes they let you exercise in the hallways and stuff like that but you basically got security on everything um, so it is a real lockdown and they are talking about doing a bracelet system you know an ankle type bracelet system yeah I think um, they do that in Hong Kong actually I yeah. had a friend that went to Hong Kong and they did the sort of prison house arrest kind of ankle yeah. bracelet well which if, you, if you're in your own home and you don't leave your own home in the grounds of your own home and you can get everything ordered in um it's probably a fair yeah. thing but they did have a horrible problem here where in victoria down in melbourne where um they basically had they were putting everybody into what we call quarantine hotels 
And anyway, and they hired a whole lot of security people um, off WhatsApp, apparently. So this is just how the story goes. I might not have it 100% correct. And then there were, uh, you know, uh, enough um, women who were lonely in the uh, quarantine hotel that the security guards thought that they might help them out with a little loving. And um, that's what caused the massive spike in Melbourne. And they, it, amazes, they, it amazes me no one really thinks these scenarios through ahead of time and go, what is human nature and what could happen? Surprise, surprise. <laughs> There's going to be COVID babies born in bad hotels in the outbacks of yes. some <laughs> city somewhere. <laughs> in the motel units. I know, it's, yeah. just, it's, it's going to be a... An interesting world phenomenon. I was reading, though, the other day that um, they say Australia's birth rate, and this is something I would have never predicted, and, and you think of it in a business terms as well, but Australia's birth rate will lose, we'll lose from COVID around 600,000 people being born. Now, I would through have not, Through not socialising and going out. Yeah. 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 And yeah, just lockdown and you know less tourism coming to the country. Um, so they're looking at this thing where we're going to get a drop in this. So like we have baby boomers going up, we're going to get a drop. And of course, all our financial modelling for the country isn't to have a drop. So if you were in the baby industry um, and you were making something for babies, you're looking at this predicted downturn that's going to happen. Yeah. And you go, oh, hold on a second. So that's going to be a whole, if this is, I was reading some stats from the government, but if it is true, then we're going to have a whole, just like we have a baby boomer as a hump, we have that, that's going to There's follow going to be us a gap. Yeah, yeah, you got it. And that's going to be a big economic gap when we're come off, you know, being at this top end of baby boomer. And then we've got this whole business or um, economic mentality of filling it in growth, 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 growth. And we're not going to get that piece of growth. So we're going to get a hole in the growth. And maybe that's, I haven't checked, but maybe that's a worldwide phenomenon. I thought if you yeah, locked everybody gonna, it's in with be, more kids. Well, it's locked in with someone you've known for too long. <laughs> <laughs> but there's going to be, that's going to be most evident. I think what you're saying is in school years. Yes. So there's, there's going to be sort of a, a, a gap in universities or, pre-university where there's a, a sort of a lack of uh, the sort of 17 year olds at a certain point yeah. where there just weren't that many born in 2000 well 2021 by the time yeah. they're actually born would have been I born know. it's fascinating hey bizarre there's all these weird knock-on effects that you're only just starting to kind of hear about or think about it, and and it affects everybody that will be doing business um as well as it will affect, like, you know, you, you just think of anybody, like, think of travel, how many airplanes we have, you know, when they get, start flying again properly, how many we have in the sky, and how many all of a sudden we'll have a gap that if this happens globally with all countries, we'll have this big massive gap, and um, we'll have all these this fleet sitting on the ground for, I don't know, maybe two years, kind of not being fulfilled. Yeah. The only good thing is, is we'll get cheap flights maybe. Who knows? Who knows? Cheap lights and better air quality. Who knows? <laughs> exactly. There's always there's always so, some strange knock-on effect. So tell me why um, why Ludlow Blunt, and then we want to reverse back through your 
career a little bit as well. Tell me, tell me the name Ludlow Blunt and what it means and why you chose it. And well, yeah, well, it's coming up with a name for a store. I always think is coming up with a name when you're at school for a band. Everything you think of sounds ridiculous until you kind of marry it with the music you're doing or whatever else. So, you know, Mick Hutnell, Simply Red. What a ridiculous name. Simply and then a colour. Simply Red. Nothing really makes sense. So I've never been some uh, a sort of a, a hairstylist barber who likes to call the name of their shop by their own name. I prefer to kind of be a little bit more... Headed. In the shadows, and yeah, so it was never going to be and none of my salons. And I've had uh, three different uh, salons in Brighton, uh, England, in London, and then New York, and then the fourth in Tokyo. None of them have ever been called by my own name. So it was coming up with a name, being in New York, having arrived in 2008. And at the time, I was reading Gangs of New York, which, as you know, became a film. Uh, Scorsese, I think, Martin mm-hmm. Scorsese did it. And in Gangs of New York, the, the the term blunt meant cash. It was a slang word for cash. I kind of like the name blunt. And name of the street of our first salon in New York was Ludlow. So it was Ludlow Blunt. It was also tied in with sort of a fictitious kind of two people that were the owners from yesteryear. You can kind of play on that faux kind of history behind it. Um, And I just kind of liked it and went with it. It sounded good. The two names together sounded good. Little knowing once I'd registered the name and had all the stationery and cards printed, (laughs) the blunt blunt actually meant slang in today's American for um, basically a joint. So marijuana joint. Yeah, right. Uh, sometimes oh. mixed with uh, it was put into cigars and it was yeah. known as a blunt and I had no idea so then people were going oh Ludlow Blunt it's like a drug thing and I was like no 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 that's not what I meant <laughs> not what I intended <laughs> but it's too late to change it because it's on you, the windows it's in the stationery so let's just go with it <laughs> you you must um, you must have enjoyed um, Matthew McConaughey and uh, The Gentleman you know the movie. Yes, yes. <laughs> like, was, when you said that about that the Ludlow Blunt and it must be a drug thing, I'm going, oh, yeah, yeah. And all, all yeah. the pictures came together for me. Um, well, I didn't even consider it. I never put that together. And I didn't know that the Blunt was cash. And I, I always think back to that story that Richard Bradenson tells about um, how he called the company Virgin, which was supposedly they were sitting around and they were trying to come up with a name for the company company and they they had um two choices and uh, it sort of came down to cash or or virginity and neither of them existed in their business so they thought virgin was better than <laughs> cash <laughs> similar thing <laughs> so it's like but you know you've woven a beautiful story with um what ludlow blunt is and the way that you've presented it and for you know people who uh, in the audience i suggest you go onto Instagram and we'll, we'll post all these um, handles and stuff or just search Ludlow Blunt Brooklyn and have a look at Russell's salon because it is something else and I'm going to segue a little bit there you've got your new window stuff that Dave Smith the artist in England's doing correct yes uh, the uh, 
the magnus opus of dave smith which is uh, six years now in the making so this is for anybody who goes and has a look this is a masterpiece of um gold foil and do you call it do you call it sign writing i don't know what you really call it it's um, it's uh it's it's reverse glass gilding um yeah. but very few glass gilders have mastered all the disciplines that dave smith does so um it's it's basically goes back to victorian times when the craft started and includes stone wheel etching which they actually call brilliant cutting where the glass is placed against a revolving stone wheel that comes to a point like you get a uh, like a cut glass um yep. tumbler like, that you yep. might you put your whiskey a whiskey glass yeah yeah, and they call that brilliant cutting. So it's literally cutting into glass. And then in reverse, it's uh, acid etching, gilding with 18, 23-carat gold leaf um, and silver, um, and reverse painting. So it's portrait painting in reverse as well. Um, right. So he's used all these disciplines on this one huge piece, um, which... I can safely say there isn't another piece in the world that's a, a, attempted the scale that Dave has with this piece I commissioned six years ago for him, which was supposed to, huh, funnily enough, take uh, take eight months to do and cost about a sixteenth of what it's now costing. But that's another story. Uh, <laughs> so it's kind of it's kind of morphed and grown. Uh, with the two of us getting more and more enthusiastic and carried away by the project, um, it's kind of grown into this monster, which is uh, nearing completion. And uh, had COVID not have happened, would have been shipped over to the States and be with us now. But um, here's, here's hoping. Well, we're actually changing space. We're moving the, yep. the salon. Um, it's within the same building. Um, the rooms at the back are slightly higher because the, the the piece with the frame, the frame to the glass piece is eight and a half feet high in all. Mm. Um, and once that's positioned three feet off the ground to get it at a position for a mirror, we're looking at a 12 foot high ceiling. So they're not easy to come by in New York, but they're easier to come by in New York than most places. And then luckily we found in the same building a 13 foot high ceiling room that's all, a thousand square feet all to get your get your all to get mirror. yeah it's like literally we're building everything around the mirror and everything is dictated by this mirror and you thought the mirror was expensive yeah yeah it's, uh, <laughs> it's literally we've created a monster but um, well, hopefully it'll all be worthwhile i mean will you um in in shifting the salon to there will you keep Pretty much the salon, you know, as it is in the in the sense. Obviously, you've got a lot of beautiful, um, you know, like chairs and everything in there's done just divinely. And you know, again, for people listening, the salon is used as a movie set. It's used um, because of the fact that it is so beautifully presented and traditional. I don't even know that it is traditional, but it's what you would imagine as traditional. Um, you know, you can tell us more about that, Russell. Yeah, um, well, thank you for saying so. We, uh, yeah, we've been lucky. We were in two two episodes of Boardwalk Empire. 
We've been recently, we were in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is another period um, TV drama. We've been in movies and countless stuff. So that's, uh, that's, all, that's all very nice. And I think the biggest compliment I had was from the set designer of Boardwalk Empire that said that it was the, the one location where they had to change the least. He, he said, usually the first thing we always swap out are the light switches, but we even had period correct light switches, which were all the mother of pearl push button 1920s light switches. So he said, we didn't really have to do an awful lot. So I made his job easy, which was uh, That's good pretty interesting though, isn't it? <laughs> that you've got it so um, dialed up. So dialed up. Yeah, I, I was I was kind of very meticulous about that because I, I see so many places that kind of do, and sometimes it is admittedly like any interior project. It's 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 governed by the budget, and I understand why some people don't go the whole hog. But you know, I've seen places where they'll put down sort of hexagonal ceramic tiles, and I was emphatic that we had three quarter inch Carrera marble tiles. So it's like everything had to be just right. Otherwise I'd, I'd be kind of pissed off at myself. So it's- Well, that's the authenticity, pretty, isn't it? That's the yeah. authenticity of you and the authenticity of you um, translate in, translates into your business and into your products. And, you know, like you're not half-assing it. You're not trying, yeah, you're doing it world-class. You, you, you've got think, yourself what, to back it. Yeah, I think what a, a lot of us uh, don't realise is just how sophisticated the market is these days. So rather than picking maybe a cheap uh, sort of wall tile, uh, which you think, well, people aren't necessarily going to notice this is just a run-of-the-mill wall tile as opposed to a sort of a handcrafted sort of crackle glaze tile where every single crackle glaze on each individual tile is unique and different because they're all handmade rather than printed on. Um, that yes. it does go a long way. The, the client might, the, the, the customer of the of the business, if or even an in, a residential interior, might not necessarily know and can pinpoint the difference, but they can certainly pick up on the authenticity. They don't quite know what it is that makes it look original, and and makes sense. Of I was going to say it's like a, it's like your subconscious has enough exposure and, and you go to a, a city like New York or a city like London um, or Milan or Paris or um, even I'm trying to think, it's certainly older cities like, you know, Buenos Aires and places like that. You go to these cities and they have authenticity baked into them, but they've got history of authenticity baked into them. And as you say, you might not recognize that that thing is in there, but there's something in the feeling that it gives you that it just keeps bedding down that it's all okay, that everything's mm. right here. And when you have a higher educational ability, you know, just from maybe being observant and living in a city like London or, as say, New York, um, because you've observed over and over and over, it's very easy to spot the – or to feel, not even spot, but to feel the fake – as opposed to the authentic. And I think mm. that probably attracts authentic or people who appreciate it to you as well. Like with your customer base, I imagine they really get a feel for that. 
and and then that yeah. was that would segue me to what happens in Tokyo. Uh, yes, it's it's interesting Tokyo because there are plenty of Western brands mm. which which open up there, and you, I'm sure you've been to Tokyo. Mm-hmm. But for any of your listeners that that haven't, uh, but are very much aware of it through TV and movies, everything, it's very much a modern city. Right. Um, through through unfortunately through the, the the bombing and earthquakes through the through the decades and everything and through history. It's a very much a modern city. You need to go to Kyoto to see the what we imagine as the traditional uh, authentic side of Japan. But Tokyo yeah. is very modern. So in translating uh, some of these brands and ours in particular that does draw on all that sort of old, old New York, oldie worldy kind of aesthetic it's very difficult because you're doing it in a maybe a 1990s modern building yeah absolutely so the the exterior is very modernist and then you're sort of drawn into this completely different world which sounds horrible there's that juxtabox position but in some ways it can kind of work because you're kind of going into this sort of aladdin's cave of a different world in the same way that a lot of their bars are say maybe in a high-rise um, block and I, uh, I don't think you get this in Australia you certainly don't get it in Europe or London or America and you go to a bar that's on the 23rd floor yep. of you a high-rise block. Um, you get it also in Hong Kong as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and then, then the minute the elevator doors open, you could be in 1920 Shanghai, or which I know is China. You, yeah. you know, you could be in this completely different world. Yeah, they uh, transport you. The, the, the transition happens as those doors open. Mm. And, you know, it's, a, an, it's a, a fabulous thing on a really tiny scale. I love to do that when we're in a home and you go to what we call the powder room where there's a basin and a toilet and a mirror. But when you open that door... Um, it, it's like you've walked into a separate world from the rest of the home. And you know, it's the sort yeah. of thing that in a restaurant um, environment, people come back to the table and go, you've got to go to the bathroom. You've got to go and check it out. Yeah. Because it transports you to another space. And Yeah, it could be some sort of fabulous kind of Moorish, Moroccan tile place. Absolutely. lit. It's totally different than the rest of the restaurant. And it's, it's a talking point. And some places, are, are people grade them by how good their bathrooms are. Uh, Absolutely. And you can understand that eh? when you do that, because you transport people. And that's something that your salon does is it transports people from um, this, the outside world and Brooklyn's, you know, pretty hip and it's going on there. Um, But when you transport into Ludlow Blunt, it takes you on a journey, you fall into that space. And, you know, I was thinking before when you were talking about, you know, the, um, this Netflix series, Peaky Blinders, and have you watched it? I have, yes. Yeah. And I was thinking about that and how you can become engrossed in their, what they're doing and how it is, you know. Um, and I, it, it sort of like has that same thing where yours, it takes you into another world, which you're kind of still connected to the one outside, but you're into this other space. It's like everything's, I want to say curated. It's not. Everything's authentic. It is curated, but it's authentic. And it's a, a real transition of a journey. And then you walk back outside and you're kind of in the bright daylight of, of the world again, but you've just been into, like you said, Aladdin's cave. It's, um, 
And I imagine yeah. in Tokyo, it's very much that people love that. They love that sense of um, they do, and they're, 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 they're really uh, they're huge fans of Americana, yeah, um, British tradition in tailoring. Um, what the, the Japanese, uh, as I think they themselves would admit, aren't necessarily great on innovation, but what they are incredible at doing is they can take an innovation another another country's innovation and mm -hmm. somehow and i don't know how they do it they improve on it so yeah. whether it's like they take the sort of production of denim and making yeah. jeans yeah. and then you know japanese denim is universally the known as the the, the best By and far. then they'll take they'll, they'll they'll take whiskey making and yep. now they're winning they're winning yeah. you know whatever the competition standard of whiskey is they're, they're winning prizes for whiskey so they, they take ideas and they obviously pick some sort of what's fallible in that idea and improve on it. And they're just incredible at doing it. I think they and their, their, their dedication, I think, it's, it's, they're very focused on anything they do and they, they will just take it to the nth degree to make it perfect. Without a doubt, they... Yeah, you're like that. They they seek perfection um, as a culture. They seek perfection, but they don't lose um, re, re, like realness in their culture. You know, I, I can't think of what the process is called, but you know, like when they have a dish and if it breaks, and then and it's special, then they will weld it back together with gold, or they'll glue it back together with gold to make it a more precious vessel. Their cultural pieces of these things aren't to cover up and over polish things that that to use them in a very um real way so there's a connection to it but then to try and find the most perfect of the piece or the most perfect outcome for it it must be a an interesting learning having salons in both spaces um for you for, for the culture of your business yeah, it's very, it's, it is very different on lots of, on a cultural side. So we obviously had the Japanese staff that came and stayed with us and, and worked with us. So they knew the running of the salon and how we worked. And what was one of the interesting takeaways that they said to us was they found it very, uh, it was sort of shocking to them how much we talked to our customers and that we greeted them as friends, which you do over a period of, of years, yeah. you clients do become friends. And, and we were kind of shocked by their response because we said, well, how does it work in Japan? She said, well, you, you are there to provide a service. And unless you were kind of spoken to, you don't really, there's not the sort of banter and the conversation yeah. that you, that we just take for granted in the West between receiving a service in a hair salon or a beauty parlor yep. or whatever yep. else they they don't seem to have that it's uh, it's a lot more subservient subservience probably the wrong word but it's it's very much they are there to provide a service for that customer and you don't really speak out of turn and form that sort of uh, uh sort of bond. friendship with them yeah. or, 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 or bond you don't I always think Which is, that it's, it's kind of uh, in, a, in a weird way. It's kind of sad because it's it seems it's a little bit more detached and formal. But then their their society is very formal in that way. Formal. Yeah. 
So yeah. it shouldn't come as a surprise, but it's just. Uh... So do they do they maintain that kind of um, status quo because it's the the culture in Ludlow, Blunt, and in Tokyo, or do they have a you know a mixed culture? Because in a, in essence, you're exporting Brooklyn and oh, maybe bits of England to them, and. Do you take something from them back in return that happens in, in one way? You know, is, there, is there a cultural exchange in both ways? I'm trying to get my thoughts together here. Cultural yeah, I know exchange. what you're saying. We, 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 we did come back after spending like three weeks there and we thought, right, we better up our game on a certain, certain things. It's like, well, you know, rather than putting a coat just straight on a coat hook, they bring like over a coat hanger. So when they take the coat, they put it on a coat hanger and then it goes, you know, all these little sort of small things that don't really mean an awful lot, but it's just part of the whole sort of ritual or procedure they do. They, they, again, it's their attention to detail and service is so phenomenal. And um, yeah, yeah we do, so we, you do take back a little bit of that. Whether, whether I can honestly say that six months after we back, we were still doing the coat hanger thing could be a different thing. I don't know. <laughs> we could have... Always. I always think of, um, I've got this thing where I go, you know, I generally go to a barber and um, I'm pretty happy to, if I, if I let my, I don't have a barber to go to, I go to any barber and I say any, not quite any, but um, I go, while my hair still grows, it's quite safe to go and actually um, let other people cut it. And I, I go to different barber shops wherever I am, like I've had my hair cut and, you know, Palm Springs, that was an experience. Um, I've had it cut in, uh, obviously, New York. I've had it cut in London, and I've had it cut in New Zealand, and I've had it cut in maybe, I don't know, seven or eight different places where I live here. Um, I'll just be driving along and see a barber shop and go, yeah, my hair needs cutting. I've got an hour, so I'll stop and go and get my hair cut. And so I, sometimes you get you know, terrible bloody haircuts, and other times you get fantastic haircuts. But each one you get a experience from that is something that is um, more more than the haircut, more than what happens to your hair. The experiences is what they talk to you about, how they talk to you, how they make you feel in their space, um, how their space feels. And it's a bit like going to a restaurant. Yes, you get fed, but unless the service is something special, um, even the best food won't get served to you twice if, if you did the service, you know, and I go, it's a very service orientated thing. I went to Cuba in the late nineties yep. and I went back two years ago and I went into a barber shop and I literally asked them, I said, can I work here for the afternoon? And I don't want to get paid. So any haircuts I do, you keep the money. And they all thought I was kind of crazy. <laughs> and that's exactly what I did. And they were like really into it. But my, my point being is that the, the sort of camaraderie and friendship amongst the people that worked there, because it was like a five-chair shop. Yep. It wasn't a huge shop. And the customers that came in, it was like a social club. And they were all like laughing and joking. Some people would come in and there'd be some TV, a TV with some sports on and stuff. They wouldn't even get their hair cut. And I don't speak Spanish. They certainly don't speak much English, although some did and really fluently. And it was just the most fantastic afternoon 
just spending it in this barber shop that was totally different than anywhere I'd ever worked before, and it was great fun. And then we we, we had it. some we had some rum at the end of it. <laughs> they, they, who's this crazy English guy that just spent an afternoon working for nothing? And off I went. It was uh, it was great fun. How fantastic though! Like and and as you say, you dive into their culture. Um, and and from it, yeah, everybody learns something from that as well. I mean, uh, they probably still talk about it because I bet you there's not too many people who offer to just walk in and, you know, I'll cut here for you. Like, let's give it a go. Let's have. <laughs> well, I think what what added to it was that at the time I had sort of a fairly long beard and I had the kind of uh, I had one of those pillbox green sort of military caps so they all thought I looked like Castro I was about they, to say they thought you were so, from the regime yeah <laughs> so they were all laughing and wanting wanting a photo taken and everything it was hilarious so oh, love it. They're, they're probably taking the piss out of me but I didn't care ah, no well that's part of the fun of it I <laughs> the, the um that sort of like bravery of doing it so okay back to this who cuts your hair and mm. when do they cut it do you just have one of the guys in the salon cut it it is. I think it's it's when you work in a, in an industry, it's sometimes the last thing you bother. I mean, I know chefs that will go and yeah. have a shitty che- cheeseburger down the road at the end of a shift. <laughs> yeah, uh, but they're in the Michelin star restaurant. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it's 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 the least thing on the mind. I, most of the time, I wear hats. Yeah. Um, so I'm never actually too bothered about my own hair. So <laughs> that's, I'm that's the, interesting. Yeah. The, I, I'm vain in many ways, but my <laughs> hair isn't one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, tell me about your um, partnership with Double RL. Well, that kind of came about. I started doing a lot of the guys from the design um, side and the offices of Double RL. And then a couple of them became friends and they talked about opening up in Williamsburg and then the space next door to me, which at the time was uh, uh, an art studio gallery. The guy I knew there said they were closing and uh, I let the guys at Double RL know. I said, look, this space is coming up next door to us. How about doing a, doing a shop here? And it, it, it happened. They took over the space. It worked really well. Our, our design aesthetics pretty much uh on the same yeah yeah uh even the exterior of it we're all sort of gold leaf and black so it worked really well so they actually found the space in japan um which was too big for them too big for what they wanted so they had an excess of space and they said well do you want to take over some of the space and we'll do it as a joint double rl um and for your listeners that don't know what double rl is it's the sort of the vintage sort of side of Ralph Lauren. So it's a lot of sort of Western workwear, sort of uh, rough lux, if you like. And um, so we we did that together and it's proven really good because we had a a lot of similar clients. You know, clients would come and get their haircut, would go and buy the clothes and people that came with the clothes would go and get a haircut. So it was a a two-way kind of thing. And uh, it's it's proven to be really good. And pre-COVID, there was talk of us doing uh, one in New Bond Street in London as well. But Uh for obvious reasons, that's uh, all on hold now. Yeah. For the time being, at least. I um, I, I love the fact that you do it. And it's like a, a, a very synergistic partnership in the sense of what you offer, but also who you are. Um, and for, again, listeners who don't know, but um, you'll often see Russell uh, in 
some Western wear of some kind. And so <laughs> tell me how this Englishman um, ends up with uh, a such a, an affinity, I suppose, for workwear and Western wear and the beautiful mix of that. And I, I follow quite a few of the people that you follow on Instagram and I think of um, the ones like Old Gold Ritual and stuff like that, where I just mm. constantly love what I see from what they do. And, yeah, where did that come from for you? What, what was the story that made it all work? Um, in I your think originally it was, it was getting into sort of classic uh, tweeds. Um, right. So it was a lot of this sort of Ralph Lauren doing the tweed, which is funny because it's really kind of almost borrowed or, some might stolen. say stolen from <laughs> from a sort of classic sort of British uh, British look. So I, I got into the tweeds and then moving over to America, got into more of the workwear. And it was just really craftsmanship of a lot of the stuff as well. So even if it wasn't particularly RRL Ralph Lauren, I was, uh, I was, you know, buying sort of boots that were handmade, like White's boots, which is a Yep. Um, they've been around for about 120 years that are a classic American workwear boot that are all still hand stitched. Um, and it was just drifting away from what I'd, I'd done through a lot of my twenties, which was just like buying fashion. Then next year you buy a different fashion that doesn't really last very long. It's mass produced. Um, and I think there's been a, a sort of a, a sort of a, a drive towards, um, individually crafted things in all sorts of production mm. and fashion's just just one of them and rather than just buying you know several items that i wouldn't wear two years later i thought it was better to buy spend a little bit more money and buy two items that you knew were going to be in your wardrobe for, for maybe a decade years. yeah yeah because yeah, yeah. they're just classics um yeah. and, and that's what sort of set me off on that path and it was just getting getting rid of uh, the usual clothes I have and just sort of started to really collecting um, more sort of bespoke, uh, like this one guy in Portland, Oregon, who makes all my hats. And I use a, a, a guy in New York that makes my shirts. Um, haven't got quite a... got to the money level of handmade shoes that are bespoke handmade, but I'll get there one day maybe. So Because <laughs> that gets yeah. to crazy money. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, it does, eh? Like, but even hats, um, hats can run a few bucks. You know, what is mm. it? Yeah, there's a bit of blunt in a hat. <laughs> yes, definitely. A you, lot must, of blunt. you must hook me up with your hat maker in, um, in Oregon. I'd really love to talk to them. Yeah, um, I'll give him a shout out. He's called uh, Folklore and his Instagram handle is This Is Folklore. And yeah. I think he's the best best milliner in, in America by far. Worth, worth checking out, for sure. Last year, was it last year or the year before when I was coming to America? Um, actually, it was last, uh, it was last year. And because I was going to travel on my own, I went, oh, I want to go and do a couple of things that are a bit different. Because when you travel on your own, of course, you, you explore more than with mm. somebody else. Or you, you're more... Um, it's not that you explore more, you're more open because you're on your own. There's more people that you talk to and you know, you're less contained in the relationship that you're traveling with. And um, I didn't end up doing it, but it was, um, I was going to go and do a hat making course. Um, in it was looking like Salt Lake City for a while. And oh, wow. I have a fascination with hats as well. And I wanted to learn to do, you know, to do a felt, um, 
from scratch, <laughs> hopefully to be able to wear it when I left. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe not. But after, you know, I did fashion design for, oh, goodness, I don't know, nearly 20 years from mainly in women's swimwear but um, and, and then sportswear. But it, it was, yeah, really interesting as, as I say, in the end, the timing didn't work for when I needed to travel, so I didn't do it. But I have this this whole thing around the hats. And with that, I, um, yeah, I'd love to interview some hat makers. So uh, I, I do follow This Is Folklore um, as well. But if you do do a shout out to them, and for me especially, I would love to interview them and talk to them about the hat making opportunity or what hat making is about. Because it's such a, yeah. a beautiful craft. And there is some stunning hat makers globally um and certainly in the u.s and they've got some beautiful ethics again they're very authentic and to own something special like a like a, a handmade hat for you is um again it's a real pleasure i mean he has one of those he has one of those devices sort of some sort of cranial apparatus it's probably got a very <laughs> good name to go with it which i don't know but it basically it, it maps the actual shape of your head because obviously yep. being a hairdresser i know exactly everyone's head shape is of different course. it could be sort of flat on one side slightly bowed on the other you know it's yeah. everyone has an individual so just putting a tape measure around your hat and your head and going oh yeah you're a you're a 22 and three quarter or whatever yep. doesn't cut it with a handmade hat it's it's shaped exactly to the shape of your head which is what makes it so incredible. So when you put it on, it's absolutely perfect. From the and, and it sits right for your head. That's so interesting. Sits perfectly. I often wear a Stetson roadie. So, or open roadie, oh, yeah. they call it. The yeah, classic. like this. Yeah. yeah. And um, I often wear one. And uh, in fact, today I'm going to a Melbourne Cup charity lunch. That's our biggest horse race in Australia. And I'm going to wear nice. one there. And um, with that, it, it, it always sits slightly, I don't know, slightly the brim's always just slight on the slight angle. Now I see it and I go, you know what, it doesn't seem that when that hat settles, it always ends up about that spot. So I just yeah. wear it. I just go, you know what, that's what. But it's the shape of my head. Yeah. It's the and shape of my head. Everyone's unique and different. Yeah. My mum just must have laid me on the backside or something that put a <laughs> dent in there or something. <laughs> um, tell me, I want to know another one about... Um, you did um, a castle in Germany, interiors. You worked with some people on that. Tell me about yeah, this. Yeah, it was it was a it was a really uh, it was a sort of a bit of bizarre situation. It was a, a client of mine whose friend owned the castle, and he was a guy in his forties that had sold a motor parts company for right. gazillions, like Fiat or he, something. <laughs> Well, it was only made to parts, so he had only sourced the parts. Oh, so if you okay. wanted like a spark plug for a certain car, there was a database that he had and you'd get the part for whichever car and it would be sent all over Germany or all over Europe. So it was like oh. one of those bizarre things. It's like, you know, you become a multimillionaire from doing something that's really quite, you know, you wouldn't even have thought yeah. of Yeah, you wouldn't have even thought about it. Well, um, anyway, so what? what <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, who would have guessed? Yeah. <laughs> start a company where you just deliver shit yeah yeah <laughs> um so For a couple of hundred he, billion. He, yeah. well actually uh, just an aside just through lockdown so from yeah. march till july he made 71 billion wow. just in that period because wow. people were all using yeah 
that service. Anyway, so back to the uh, crazy German with the castle. Um, so one of his toys that he bought for as a weekend home was this castle, which had been boarded up for, I think, about 20 years. And it was in a sort of, it wasn't dilapidated, but it was certainly in need of uh, interior restoration. Um, and he'd got, an, he'd got a designer to do it. And he wasn't entirely happy with everything they'd done on the interior. Some parts of it were absolutely beautiful. A lot of the staircase and the, and the milling woodwork was right. phenomenal. But others wasn't really in his taste. And this friend, uh, this mutual friend of ours, knew my taste and what I did with the, with the store and what I've done in a, another couple of places. And he just suggested that I come out and just have a look and give the guy some suggestions. So next thing I know, I've got a, 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 a first-class ticket to Germany, go to Germany, and I'm picked up by Maybach at the airport. Well, yeah, really? And I'm, yeah, so straight away I'm like, oh, this is, I can dig this. This is serious. First-class ticket, the Maybach Yeah, <laughs> the Maybach did. It was more comfortable than the first-class uh, seat. Wow. And off we went, off we off we sped our way into the Sourlands, which was normally about a two-hour journey, but was about an hour. Uh, on the on the on the autobahn, I noticed it was he was going a hundred and it was one hundred and twenty miles an hour. And the other cars I was passing, you weren't whizzing past them. You were going sort of fairly slowly past them, which meant they were probably going for about 110 or something. Yeah. And I only really knew to look at the speedo because all the trees were like a bit blurry, you know, as you were going so far. Because <laughs> it was so I remember so leaning over to the, oh, yeah, I was leaning. Uh, so I leant over and I said to the, uh, I said, the driver, are there any, uh, are there any accidents on the autobahn? And he went, not, not normally. And then with like perfect sort of comedy pause, he goes, but when there are, everybody dies. <laughs> and I was like, no joke, because at 120 miles an hour, an airbag isn't going to save you. Anyway, well, I digress. So, so, yeah, so I, I turn up at this uh, incredible uh, castle, and he only really wanted uh, the, the, a dining room, a couple of bedrooms, and in the basement, he wanted like a classic hunting lodge oh, wow. done. So sort of, he actually did hunting. So yeah. he, he was out there with, you know, shooting bulls or whatever. And uh, he wanted like a classic hunting lodge. So I, I, I basically, that's what I did. I just did the sort of interiors for that and sourced some beautiful uh, original antler sort of sconces yeah. and all the, uh, you know, you, you've got to be careful. You don't want to go to sort of Disney on these things and make it a little bit too kind of kitsch of what, you know, everyone presumes a hunting lodge looked like. But by the same token, you want to do a hunting lodge. So it was it was, it was was a really good, fun project to do. And one of those, you know, ones where I wouldn't say it was money, no object, but there wasn't a single thing that I... Uh, yeah, that you, I, waved, you I waved it forward. in front of them. And, yeah. Yeah, like the, the, it was such a huge ceiling in one of the rooms that I had uh, this uh, three-tier wrought iron chandelier made and shipped out there and he didn't bat an eyelid at the uh at the cost of that so that was great fun it's always good fun when you can realize as i'm sure you do on a lot of your projects you can realize something that's in your mind put on paper and then have um have client that really wants to see that through to the to the final thing it is it is very very exciting when you get to um create something I, I created about three years ago 
a board table um, for a board of directors. And it is, um, we call it the Saturn and it is six meters. Now I can't do that in, um, what is that? That's for 18 feet or something, I think, wow. six meters. So it's six meters round like a donut and it's got a hole in the middle and it is around about um, four feet. No, yeah, maybe more. Hold on. 12. Yeah, probably about four or five, four feet wide. So it's a big round wow. circle and it is really thin looking. So you're talking about it that sits in a massive room. Um, and it's really thin and it's white Corian. So it's just white Corian. Oh, nice. So yeah. there's no joins in it and it stands cantilevered on eight legs. And so there's only eight legs that hold it. And when you're sitting at it, you can't touch the legs with your feet. So you're kind of sitting so like it almost feels like shelf. it's kind of floating. Levitating. Yeah. Yeah. And the legs are, are gold. Um, they're not made of gold, they're made of steel, but um, they're wrapped with, uh, I went, how do I do this? Because I couldn't find anybody who could electroplate them gold. And so finally I used um, car wrap for the legs so that oh, you would wow. wrap a, you know, people who, yeah, Justin Bieber wraps his um, Lamborghini. Well, why can't I wrap a Yeah, a, a, so it's highly reflect. So it's highly reflective. Absolutely. So it's uh, got these gold oh, legs. And then it just hovers and, it, and it's got an LED light that runs around the internal part and LED light that runs around the outside part. Wow. Um, so the, the table gives this almost a sense of levitation um, yeah. in the room. And if you're sitting at it, like it can seat, uh, I don't know, 26 or so. If you're sitting at it, you can actually shake it um, and it will, it will have a little wobble in it as well, but just sideways not across, not up and down. Yeah. And uh, one of the challenges was, is if everybody stood on it in a celebration, what would happen to it? Um, you know, would it just twist and collapse or what would happen? And, uh, you know, modeling it in, I didn't model it. I had it modeled in SolidWorks um, to check, you know, could it carry these kind of loads? What would happen if everybody danced on it? Um, and then actually getting somebody to execute each piece of it and, it's on the third floor of a building. So each piece had to come up in the lift and then it had to be bolted and glued and yeah. put together in its space. That's the, yeah, that's the beauty of Corian because it can, oh, you can so seamlessly beautiful. sort yeah. of sand out the join. I did a, I did a bar in East London and uh, we had a, a 28 foot bar, uh, yep. which actually uh, went through different heights actually and it was all totally seamless because it's such a it's such a great material to work with fantastic yeah fantastic so yeah when you get to do something like that and you know budget was a concern um, but every time I would sort of say you know it's costing a bit more they'd be like well, well we want it you know we want it mm. yeah <laughs> I don't think I made any money from it um, at all, <laughs> I, I, but I, but the joy of doing it was something else. Well, thank you so much. It's been a brilliant chat, man. Um, I'm looking Indeed, forward to publishing thanks, this. Thanks for, uh, thanks and, for the invite. It's been great. Oh, so good, buddy. Um, and we better catch up online for a whiskey. I know it's Definitely. early in the morning for me, but I can do that some morning. Um. <laughs> it's, it's it's the thinking man's breakfast. <laughs> we'll see i might get you to do the thinking in the morning then no that would be fantastic and if you can hook me up with um your mate who's uh, folklore i would really love to interview him as well definitely that would be great i will do 
Russell, right. thank you, buddy. Take care. Have Take care. Time. Good to talk. Cheers, Speak man. Speak to you soon. Bye. Take care. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now, I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, if it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking, say, three questions. And this is called takeaway selling. So this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you. It's almost like imagine if you had some hot ch chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them. You put them in front of them, someone and then they went to reach out and then you, you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you. It's that type of thing. So this is called takeaway selling. So the first question you ask, you say, well, why don't you just leave the situation as it is? Why, why make the change? That's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? And see if they follow you. See if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.